I was supposed to prep for this today, but I ended up just reading like Avita lyrics cover to cover. <laughs> so I can't believe there is a second verse about the insecticide. He's, he's, he's like, she's like Cinderella, but my insecticides, bestseller, woohoo. Okay, back to Ava. And I'm like, cool, we're talking about Ava now. And, and then randomly, he's just like, all right, back to my insecticide. He has no um, transitions to <laughs> the insecticide. Because I, I love how that song just like moves. But then every time I just listen to the lyrics, it's just like, Che, what are you doing? I got so obsessed with like this concept album. It's been great. Anyways, we should talk about plays. <laughs> Welcome everyone to Bottomless Broadway, where we usually talk musicals over mimosas, but Broadway's dark and we're all out of musicals for this season. So today, we're going to talk about plays. I'm Cindy, here with my co-host Christine. We are going to be splitting plays into two episodes. We don't know plays as well as musicals. However, we do watch a crap ton of them because between the two of us, we pretty much see everything on Broadway. So we're going to try. Today, we're going to start with um, Seawall, A Life, Slave Play, Minutes, and then Frankie and Johnny in that order. I will put in timestamps in the description because it is pretty hard to talk about these shows without spoilers. So if you do want to avoid spoilers, then there will be timestamps in the description to let you know which times those will be. And right before those spoilers happen, you'll also hear this sound. And so that way you will be reminded to check the show notes in case that is something you want to skip. Do you want to tell us about Seawall slash a life? Sure. It's two monologues performed by um, Jake Gyllenhaal and Tom Sturridge. They both play like two fairly young dads. They just like have a monologue about their life with their daughter as well as stuff going on with their parents. I guess it's just like the generation above and below them and how these young fathers are navigating life. And the two monologues have very, very different tones. So Tom Sturridge starts the first one, which is Seawall, where he plays a guy named Alex. He has a happy family with his wife and his daughter, Lucy. And then he also has like a really stern ex-military father-in-law that for some reason loves him, even though he looks like a schlep. <laughs> Jake Gyllenhaal plays a guy named Abe, going through both his father's last days as well as birth of his daughter. And that one's more of a comedy. They are doing an audible show of it. Seawall Life comes out on April 30th. We'll also drop a link to that if we can find it. So let's start with Seawall. I mean, I guess like first impressions were just, you know, everyone kind of gets drawn into this show for Jake Gyllenhaal. And you get to see this really cool other play also with Tom Sturridge, who I was not familiar with. But I really liked his monologue because the whole set is basically empty. There's just two levels to it and then like a ladder going up to the second level. And he walks like everywhere in a super casual way, like he speaks to the audience. So I thought that was really cool because it was really just like a let me tell you a story rather than like a one-man show. It was just like a very sort of like almost meditative piece. Like stuff happens, but he just kind of draws you in by the storytelling. And he does go on a few tangents, so it does just feel like you're kind of talking to a friend almost. 
Yeah. So Seawall and A Life are by different playwrights. So like the tone and the style are like totally different. A Life, they kind of like dive straight into the narrative. Seawall, it's just like a string of anecdotes that eventually kind of come together and lead to the story. Yeah, we should mention Seawall's written by Simon Stevens and A Life is written by Nick Payne. Tom Sturge has mentioned that he actually had done other plays by Simon Stevens or at least worked with him. And he did the Broadway play for 1984. I think that was a couple years ago now. But it was after that when um, Simon Stevens approached him about doing this show. And this show has been like in existence for a while, whereas A Life is pretty new. I think the off-Broadway run of Seawall A Life was the first time that A Life in this rendition has been performed. So it is also just like two very contrasting pieces. The New York Times review for this is hilarious. I forget who wrote it. So she starts off with like talking about how the specific time that she saw this show, there was an Amber Alert. You know how like at the end of Seawall, there's that like kind of like sound machine and just like total silence and he's just like sitting there chilling. Yeah. So I think halfway through that, like an Amber Alert went off. She basically made it sound like the world shattered. (laughs) And then she was like, but Tom is so professional and he just like meditates for a few seconds and looks at the audience and he's like, it's okay. And you don't know if he's talking to himself or to the audience because it really disturbed the moment, but he's just so good. And like, as soon as he says that immediately, we're like brought back into his spell. He is on stage already when... At least when we walked in, I don't know if he was there the whole time. And there's a time when, like, the audience quieted down because I guess they thought the show was starting. And he just kind of looked out at the audience and was like, oh, you guys can keep talking. Like, we're not starting yet. There is a seawall. And I think, like, Alex talks to his cool ex-military father-in-law. And he starts explaining, like, what a seawall is and the engineering around it or whatever and he's just like yeah the water drops like 300 feet then his daughter falls off of it and dies he he equates like his i guess like emotional intactness to the seawall and he was just like it's like everything's chill and then in one moment like your life can just drop 300 feet kind of thing Mm -hmm. it was really cool how they did that because the whole time he was talking You know, he is going on all these tangents, but he has this very, like, calm voice and a really calm presence. And you're just like, oh, he's a chill dude. And then you hear the end of the story and you're like, maybe he's, like, just in grief or, like, is just numb because this just happened to him. And he's not actually necessarily a a calm dude, but he's just trying to figure out how to sort of reconceptualize his life now that this tragedy has happened. And so I think it is cool how that sort of wraps around and you can view the whole delivery of this piece kind of differently after knowing the ending. Because the monologue is just like anecdote after anecdote with many tangents, when he gets to the part where Lucy dies, I like almost didn't catch it or like didn't process it in time. Yeah. A life. It's a very interesting script because he kind of talks about his terminally ill father and his like relationship with his mom as they're 
handling that, as well as his pregnant wife leading up to her actually giving birth. Um, so it's two different, like, parallel stories. So Jake Gyllenhaal plays Abe. Abe switches between the two stories, like, whenever the fuck he wants. <laughs> yeah. I think, like, the part that we, like, laughed the hardest about was, like, the hospital calls or whatever, and, like, something's really terrible with his dad so he and his mom run to their car and then he's just like she sits down at the driver's seat and her hands are shaking and i'm just like i can drive and she's just like no and i'm like i can drive we're like yeah yeah, like that makes sense and then like he switches names in reality it's his wife who's like dilating (laughs) (laughs) and at the wheel and he's just like dude, I can drive. Like, you clearly are giving birth. He also has that grand comedic moment where he runs off stage to the back of the house, comes to the front, and then squeezes himself between the first and second rows of center orchestra. I don't know how he doesn't, like, step on someone. Like, when we go to the bathroom and come back, I feel like I step on toes. (laughs) I mean, he is, like, basically imitating himself running, like, in the scene. But there's no reason for him to really do that besides just to like i guess involve the audience and i think that is something that they want like consciously tried to do is just like bring the audience into the show that he's telling like jake gyllenhaal in our show someone was like coughing and he was like oh hold on like let me grab your cough drop so he like goes off stage for Mm -hmm. a solid 15 seconds to go find a cough drop and he comes back and he's like here you go Doesn't his spotlight, like, not even follow him? He just, like, walks out of it. So Nick Payne wrote the play, and it's a very personal play for him because it is based off of the events in his life. It was funny because Jake Gyllenhaal also knew the playwright, and he had read this play, like, seven years ago or something. And he was like, hey, I really want to do this play. Can I do this play? And the playwright was like, oh, no, I don't. I think it's, like, too personal for me to let someone else do it. And he said he's like, I would ask him every six months if I could do this play. And he would say no. So Jake Gyllenhaal, a huge fan of this play. And it was only when like Seawall and A Life were put together that the playwright was like, I think I can understand like why I should let someone else do this play that's about my own life. And just having those two together. I almost didn't see this play because I really didn't care about Jake Gyllenhaal. I think his next too short. And I had just <laughs> I had just recently seen him in um Spider-Man Far From Home and I was just like, yeah, his neck's too short. <laughs> well, you know like when like famous attractive people come on Broadway, I'm just like, well, I wanna see them. It's like I wanna see Tom Hiddleston in betrayal. I mean, he's got his own hairline problems, but <laughs> You want to see if they're as hot in real life as on screen. Yeah, but like Jake Gyllenhaal, I was just like, I really don't care to even see him in real life because he's next to you, short. <laughs> but he's actually, he was like, I loved him in a life. He's really good. So now I don't mind that his next year. And <laughs> I would definitely see more things with him. Just saying, this play changed my opinion of Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> it was that good. Also, just putting Seawall and A Life together just made for a really nice show. It's just the way they brought it together and like used the same stage and just used it in different ways I thought was really well done. So I'm I'm pretty curious to see how it'll read on the Audible version where you only get the audio. 
his arms, his hands, my dad's feet, they balloon like Popeye. We're having to rub moisturizer into his skin because his skin is starting to crack. And the hospital insists that he adopt a diabetic menu, and he hates everything there is to hate about the hospital's diabetic menu except for the Jello. Um, rhapsodizing about the virtues of this particular brand of Jello quickly becomes my dad's favorite pastime. No one is safe from my father's Jello love. Uh, I get a text message from my grandmother, and she says she wants to come and visit him with my aunt and my uncle, that they want to come visit him, my dad. And all of a sudden, I realize that probably nobody has told any of my relatives anything. So I text back, great, GRT, looking forward to seeing you, the letter U, all X. We're passing around an empty cheese casing, as in those, you know, those sort of, I think they're made of wicker. You know, it's like the kind of thing that usually houses a camembert or like that Swiss cheese. I don't know what it's called. And the woman running the class, she's saying something about how when the cervix stretches to the circumference of this empty cheese casing, then and only then will the second stage have begun. And I am writing down as much as I can. Three, ten, sixty, plan your route, have a plan A. Most definitely make sure you have a plan B. Check for mucus plug, have bag packed, contractions app, question mark. Uh, cook a small carbohydrate meal, snacks, water, straws, trusty pillow, towel you don't care about. Uh, get a tens machine. What is a tens machine? Question mark. Brackets. On to our next play the big ticket number of this episode because it's well it was supposed to win a lot of tonys but who the fuck knows now it's also the most controversial probably yeah if you haven't guessed now is slave play by the ever so vocal jeremy o'harris quick summary um slave play it's a one-act show but the first half of it starts off with disturbing sexual relationships between slaves and their white masters there's three couples sort of like montage moments where all three of the couples get like wheeled onto stage and everyone's just moaning and you just like see them all having sex and then like an alarm goes off and then everyone changes into modern day clothes and they sit in a circle with like psychologists and do group therapy the general idea of this whole like therapy group slash psychological experiment I guess, is just to say that if you're in an interracial relationship, you have to recognize that it's an interracial relationship and that there's like history between the clash of cultures. It was a really interesting play. Um, So it does kind of unfold in thirds. Like the first third is you're on this plantation and then the second is the sort of group therapy moment where another couple of two women come in and try to be like helpful psychologists. And then the last third is just that one couple of the black woman, Kanisha, and her husband, Jim. They're just like having a conversation in their bedroom about like what her needs are in terms of their different racial identities and what he needs to do to help recognize what their different like inherited cultures are i guess you can already tell from the beginning that there is something going on during the plantation scene like kanisha talks to jim it's pretty clear like slaves wouldn't talk to their masters like that but also she uses somewhat modern lingo sometimes and the same thing happens for some of the other couples as well also there's those like weird ass sequences where 
Rihanna just comes out on the speakers and Kanisha starts twerking to work. Oh, yeah. I forgot that happened. Just a quick tangent to talk about the set. The set is yes. super cool. And it's you walk in and it's basically like this mirrored wall. And on the overhang of the mezzanine in front of it is kind of just like these LED panels that are projecting a plantation. So you can see a plantation if you look at the stage, but it's because it's the mirror image of that plantation that's being projected. It's kind of like the audience is viewing all of this from the plantation. You're the privileged ones or, or you know, you can take it any, any way you want to in that sense. And then as each third of the play happens, the mirrors kind of reorient themselves to basically give you a different perspective of what's happening. And Jeremy O'Harris has mentioned that he designed this set specifically so that people in like the last row of the mezzanine would have the best view, which is pretty interesting because that is also very rare. The screens are definitely very dynamic and they kind of play with the lighting too because like in the last scene that you just talked about, um, because there's like just like a lot of very intimate conflict going on um the stage is pretty dim but then the screens on the mezzanine are like red and just like very warm you know neither of us are white or black and i think the show specifically speaks to white people i think but it does also speak to just like people in interracial couples each of the couples including the therapists are of one black person and one white person because at one point, like, the the black woman therapist is like, let me talk. Like, you keep interrupting me. You're such an asshole. Yeah, basically. It's sex therapy. They're all there because one person can't get it up. That's why when one guy in the gay couple came, they kept thinking about it. Um, Gary they came. It. Yeah, they're like, it came. And everyone's like, we should clap to that. Yeah, the play is also very graphic. And you do see a full naked body, like... From all angles. <laughs> it wasn't like, let me tastefully undress and then like face the bed. It was like, let me undress, walk around the entire stage. So that was great. But my favorite couple to watch is actually the white girl and the really attractive black guy. Mm -hmm. Because at first he has that whole like denial thing where he's, because he is super attractive and they cast the perfect person for this. Sullivan Jones playing Philip. He's pretty cute and also extremely tall. And he's just like, no, I don't get what you guys are talking about. Like, I've never felt white or black. Like, in high school, in college, I've always just been the hot guy. <laughs> but, like, also he's extremely dumb because then – so, oh, so then the white woman in this relationship is, like, a tiny little mousy girl kind of. And then, like, we find out later on that they literally met because her husband had, like, a cuckold fantasy and she wanted to, he wanted to see his wife having sex with a black guy. And so, like, they found him on, like, Craigslist or something. <laughs> Eventually, she left her husband um, to be with him. But it's, like, clearly, like, the most fucked up situation amongst all three of the couples. But, like, in the beginning, Philip is just like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just hot. I like how they have the three different couples because it's they're all like fucked up in different ways, basically. Like he just 
I guess, has repressed it down so much because he has the benefit of being super hot. So, like, he can kind of get through life without acknowledging that he is Black and that comes with a ton of stigma and stuff. Whereas um, Kanisha is very aware of what it means to be, like, with a white man. And she's very in tune with, like, her spirituality and her ancestors. So the part that gets kind of confusing for me is um, Kanisha gets very mad at Jim for, like, stopping the sex experiment um, because Jim stopped it, saying that he was uncomfortable with degrading her as a slave woman because he loves her and thinks that she's a queen or whatever. Also, Jim has a British accent, so that changes everything. Um, and Kanisha is like, you have so much trouble, like, degrading me, but, like, that's our history, and, like, you can't even let me have that or whatever, which, like, later on in the third scene where she's just kind of, like, talking about this again, he's like, fine, let's have some degrading sex, and then he gets naked, and they fuck hard. That makes her really angry, too. Well, no. Like, it gets too intense. Kanisha, like, screams stop. It's super uncomfortable. And then, like, they break up. And I have no idea what just happened. Well, I actually didn't see it that way. Because I didn't think they broke up at the end. I think what she needs from him... And she mentioned she thought it would be different because he's not American. And, you know, like, her ancestors were African-American. So they were mistreated by... American plantation owners and since he's British in her brain she like rationalizes like oh well he didn't have anything to do with it but like in her I guess soul we'll say she'll she still thinks that because he's a white man and you know like the British imperialism he's still sort of like inherently implicit in this whole like takeover that white people have enacted and so I saw it as like she needed him to acknowledge his heritage the same way that she's acknowledging her heritage and just and she needs to be kind of like degraded and abused for her to understand their positions, I guess, and also for him to understand their positions. Because once it's over, she says a safe word and he does stop and she thanks him. And then, and I think that's the end of the play. I don't think there's anything, any other lines after that. Um, I thought that was like a goodbye. Like, a, okay, I thought this is what I wanted. Like, I thought that if we had some degrading sex, it would be exactly what I wanted. It would help and everything would be okay. But really, I can't take it. It's too much. And also, this is not working out. Oh, I I don't get how this like ties into this whole sex therapy thing. So like basically the therapists are specific, like they specifically picked these interracial couples to focus their sex therapy on. And they think that by like getting this interracial tension out of them, it'll help with the erectile dysfunction. I don't think that's supposed to be realistic and like it's not necessarily specifically erectile dysfunction or, you know, stuff like that. But I think that's almost a metaphor for just like parts of your relationship won't work correctly because you've been trying to gloss over this. Do you know like what prompted Jeremy O'Harris to write this? Um, I didn't look into that. He does really like to write work that 
challenges kind of the way things are. And like the way that he writes is not meant to be like he doesn't write for Broadway. He writes to like write whatever he wants to and say the things that he wants to say. And then it just so happened that with this play, Broadway picked it up and he got producers that were really willing to do what he wanted to do. And I think he specifically asked to bring in people of color that normally would not get a a chance to work in it. So he did have a lot of say in like everything involved in this play. And then also, you know, that quote from Andrew Cuomo about like, I don't use what Broadway thinks it's a barometer of anything. And he mm-hmm. like posted two different tweets with that. And one was just like me whenever people ask why they can't see any of my friends plays on Broadway. <laughs> I was like, okay. He hates Broadway. Yeah. He I think he he's like a he's like a hipster that like hates institutions. And he really pushed a lot to help people who would not normally get to see shows to be able to get to see his play. Work, 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 work. It's to me, I'll be work, 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 work. It's to me, do me da 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 somebody work, 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 Well, enough about this, dude. Yeah. Um, should we move on? So that's slave play. Also very crazy. We have the, the Minutes, which is a very recent show. I don't believe it's open yet, right? It's still in previews? No, it has not. The Minutes is about like local government. Um, I believe it's like a, what is it, like a city council, town council meeting? Yep. So Army Hammer plays Mr. Peel. He's new to the town, Big Cherry. Um, he like just moved there with his wife and kid. He joins the city council because he wants to like make the world a better place. He had been on the council for like a couple weeks, but then he left for the like for the death of his father. So he comes back and one of the councilmen is missing and he tries to ask everyone like what happened. No one will tell him anything. And at the beginning of every city council meeting, Miss um, Johnson, who's like the secretary person, is supposed to provide like a manuscript of the last week's meeting, which is called the minutes. Um, but she doesn't provide one, which like makes him even more curious. There's like a lot of talk about this city fable kind of thing where um, they talk about how these like Native Americans – attacked these like white settlers kind of um they just like attacked a farmer family kidnapped their daughter took them back to their native american base and then three soldiers went after them and the three of them like fought off their entire tribe and rescued the girl and when the guy that rescued the girl came back he had like three arrows in his back and the whole town worships him yeah it's like a tall tale and mr peel is like is this really believable like what and then eventually after his prying and he finds out what happened at the last week's city council meeting um mr carp had done a lot of research um and found like native american evidence on the story because he was also like very curious about if the story was true um and he found out that like that wasn't the case at all and like in reality 
um, it was like a day when all the Native American men had gone out to like hunt and stuff. For some reason, like the white settlers just attacked their tribe when it was just like old people, women and children and slaughtered a ridiculous amount of people. And it was written from like a girl and she was like dragging an even like smaller toddler, like trying to help her run away. Um, but then like she couldn't and they killed that like two year old. So Mr. Peel is like, yo, like, why did we kick Mr. Carp off city council because of this? And then, um, the mayor that's played by Tracy Letts. His name is Mayor Superba, which is just fucking weird. Um, he's like, our privilege is built upon this blood and like, we can't give it up because like, that's why you get to live in your townhouse with your perfect little daughter and she gets to go to school unscathed. Our generations upon generations of privilege is all built upon this. And like, you may think you're so righteous wanting to unveil the truth, but like in reality, you've been benefiting from like these types of lies your whole life. And like, if you really want what's best for your daughter, you'll do the same now. And they also like give him some weird threats. It sounds like that they just like killed off Mr. Carp. Mr. Peel is like, fuck no, he leaves. And then some weird shit happens and the entire city council starts doing a gorilla dance and they rip off their business casual attire they're all in wife beaters. They put their hands into like a bucket of blood and smear it all over their face and bodies as they scream. And then after they're all bloody, Army Hammer comes back and he's like, all right, I see your point. Then he does not smother himself with blood because he's too pretty. But <laughs> he does kind of like join their ceremony. Yeah, so the transition between the sane part of the show and the insane part of the show is totally random. It's just like one second they're kind of talking about like white privilege, like normal people. And then the next second they just have blood all over their faces. And then the show ends. And it wasn't like a very satisfying ending because not a lot really went on at the city council meeting. They didn't really talk about much. They were like, let's build a fountain. Let's not build a fountain. Let's build an attraction in this park where a wrestler dressed up as like an yeah. Abe Lincoln stripper beats a lot of people. It's going to be called the Lincoln Smackdown. Everyone's like, half the people were like, no, why the fuck would we do that? And half the people were like, yeah, that's a great idea. And this one black guy is like, that's racist. Yeah. Also, this play was a Pulitzer finalist. So I was like, there's got to be something about this that, you know, makes it amazing. So I just felt like I spent the whole time during the play waiting for it. And so mm-hmm. Army Hammer's character does do well in that sense as an audience stand-in where he's like wait no but what about mr carp like why isn't he here like what happened to the minutes from last week because that's obviously what we're all wondering because everything else is just so small and insignificant and then when that finally came out i was like oh that's it like that doesn't seem worth a whole what like almost two hours of build-up to because i was like it just doesn't seem like it was wor- like in slave play at least the last act it had something to say that was different than the previous two acts and it was something to say that like neither of us really had considered before like thought about but here it's like well they're racist and they're building their community on the backs of like all the native americans that they just like m- mercilessly slaughtered and i'm like well that's all of america like i don't know what 
point you're trying to bring across. And like the process of like Army Hammer going from like fuck no to like accepting it is also like he literally walks off stage and walks back on. We don't really see this process of him like accepting it. There's no like big emotional, like internal emotional journey that we see him go through. Um, it's just like very nonchalant. He's just like, all right, I'm on board. So like, they're just like, there almost wasn't a conflict. It was just like, I want to see the minutes. I want to see the minutes. I want to see the minutes. Okay, let's go crazy and rub blood on everyone. And I guess part of the play is also that like all these people are fighting over like super small petty things. But when it comes to like the quote unquote real things like suppression of their history to be able to give their children a glorious future, they come together with it. After watching this show, I like talked to you about how there were like some very clear allusions to Parks and Rec which is my favorite TV show of all time. Parks and Rec, there's like a club called the Snake Hole and like in the Big Cherry, there's a club called Snake Lounge, I think. Like Parks and Rec is a show that is about local government and obviously it's like very many seasons and so they have a lot more time to deal with issues, but like it does also deal with very serious issues because it's also about like a pretty ignorant town and like a number of very passionate local government officials trying to make a difference basically. And they do also talk about like atrocities against native Americans and everything. And it's like done in such like nice comedy fashion. And like, I think like a lot of the same messages are still there, but it's just like so much more palatable and understandable. And I felt like they focused on all the wrong things. Like, I think it would have been interesting to see what Miss Johnson had to say in terms of like, she's like, yes, I'm going along with this. But also like, this is what I stand for. And that is like truth of the city council meetings. I want to make sure that it's all document. Like she wasn't even supposed to document the minutes from the week before, but she did anyway, because she strongly believes in that. And I think the things like that would have been much more interesting to explore. And also like uh, Mr. Peel's sort of evolution between like well you guys are terrible people and i'm never gonna support what you do to being like oh shit like this is my only way forward to securing a future for my daughter in this town and like and i think just the individual sort of personal conflicts would have been a lot more interesting yeah remember how like the city council is super sketchy there's like one guy that's like an Italian mafia boss <laughs> and his brother is like selling police evidence or whatever. Yeah. We never really know what's up there, but I agree. Like exploring Miss Johnson. Cause like, she's very, it's like, she almost got somewhere, but she didn't because she like did have that. Like, well, like my job is to document this, be accurate, blah, blah, blah. But then, like, when Army Hammer questions her more, she's like, oh, no, no, no. Like, I'm not going to help you anymore because, like, I'm just a mother. I'm just trying to keep this job. I'm just trying to raise my kid. Um, Which, like, is a cool conflict. But, like, yeah, they didn't go anywhere with that. They didn't really, like, press anyone for – because, like, there were people on the council that were, like, clearly more in agreement with Mayor Superba. And then there were also a couple of councilmen that were, like, more in agreement with Mr. Peel and were kind of scared to voice it. But then like when Mr. Peel like kept pushing at that, they were like, yeah, yeah, you know, like I agree with him. We should read last week's minutes. Um, and like, we didn't really get to explore 
them either. Like, I don't know, because at the end, they behaved exactly like everyone else with the whole blood smearing stuff. Whereas like prior to the blood smearing thing, which kind of just like blanketed everyone, they all did have like their unique opinions and personalities on this matter. Um, And then like, I mean, maybe that's like what the end was about. It was just like, yeah, like you can have morals, you can think one way or another, but ultimately you're all selfish hoes. Maybe that's like the point. I don't know. But like, yeah, like nothing was explored. It probably could have been longer than like an 80 minute show so they could show some stuff. But also I'm happy it wasn't longer because I did not enjoy it. Yeah. And I do want to call out um, Austin Pendleton is plays Mr. Oldfield, who like his name is just this like really old man. Like (laughs) he does remind me a little bit of just like a more unhinged Bernie Sanders. And he gets like the best laughs. I don't even remember what, what was it? He like, he was saying something about a drugstore or something. Do you remember that line? He, so there's like a, I think like an old local drugstore, like mom and pop drugstore was like replaced by a CVS or something. And he was like, he like this probably isn't the exact line, but he was just like, "Where am I gonna get my Tylenol?" <laughs> and then like the lady next to him is like, "Don't worry, you can still get it from CVS." Oh, and then he goes on and on about how he wants Mister Carp's parking lot and how it's ridiculous that he has the farthest parking space, even though he's two hundred years old and has <laughs> been on city council for the longest. And he's like, "The only person that even comes close is um Ms. Innes, the other Miss Innes." Um, and then like randomly. Later on, Miss Innes stands up and talks about how, like, the old mayor or whatever, like, assaulted her. And she was like, moving on. And I was like, what? But, yeah, I mean, they got a great cast. I feel like none of the characters really just had much to do besides Army Hammer and, I guess, Mr. Carp, who's played by Ian Barford. Because, like... And I guess, like, mm-hmm. Tracy Letts, because he's the mayor and he's just actually, like, no, we gotta, like, keep to tradition of repressing people. But Didn't you say something about how um, prior to the Broadway run, Mayor Superbo was played by someone else and the reviews for that were way better? Yeah, so before, I should have looked this up before, but when they were doing it at Steppenwolf, Tracy Letts, like, never had intentions of playing the mayor but I think the piece also changed a bit after Steppenwolf, which is also when it got its Pulitzer finalist um, distinction. So it's probably different than what we saw on Broadway. And he never really had any intention of playing the mayor, but then they were just like trying to find a person. And I guess no one could really get the delivery that he wanted. And so he was like, I guess I'll do it myself. That's sad. I'd like to think that he could save the show, but I don't think so. (laughs) As we've been saying over and over, this iteration of it did not seem like it was very worth seeing. That's about all I got to (laughs) say. And so we move on to Frankie and Johnny in the Claire de Lune, which I saw alone. Um, And this Mm -hmm. was the first play of the season. This was back in like May, I think. So, like, literally before the Tonys had happened, and but after the Tony cutoff. And so it's a two-hander. So the only two actors are Audra McDonald and Michael Shannon. And it's basically Audra McDonald plays this 
um, waitress at like a cafe and Michael Shannon plays the cook at the cafe. And it's just like this very sort of grungy place. They're like not super high income or anything. And it's about their one night stand. And so he goes home with her and she, and they just like the whole first, I don't know, like three minutes are just them having sex in this bed with like very artful lighting so that you can't, you see like just enough to tell what's happening, but not enough to like see anything like incriminating, which is, I was really impressed by that. And it is a revival of um, Terrence McNally's play. And so I just didn't really think it landed that much. A lot of people seem to really like it. And the thing is, the way that this unfolds is that um, they have this one night stand. And then Audra McDonald is like, all right, cool. Like, we did that. I'm going to, like, you should leave now. Like, whatever. And and Michael Shannon is like, oh, no, but, like, we have a connection. Like, we should stay. Like, I'm going to make myself a sandwich from stuff in your fridge something like that and it's it's about basically these two people connecting one night and and they also hear this song which is Debussy's Claire de Lune on the radio the way that it played out it seemed like because Michael Shannon he's kind of he has this kind of like villain look and he looks very sort of imposing he was the villain in Shape of Water most recently I think And so it just seemed like he was trying to pressure her into a relationship that she did not want. And like his delivery was very aggressive and stuff. And so I didn't think that worked for me. And and it was just like circling conversation about these two people. And it was the same thing. He just asks for a relationship for two and a half hours. Basically, yeah. Like Audrey McDonald wants him to leave. (laughs) Wow. Never take guys home. Only go to their place. I know, right? And I thought this was a one-act play, so I literally almost left at intermission. And I was like, Wait, oh. what, what happened right before intermission? I mean, that was when they first heard Claire de Lune on the radio. And they're like, they're just like standing in the window like, oh, look at how beautiful this is. So I was like, that could be an ending. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was like, maybe it's like a super artsy show. So they don't do a curtain call. Like, they don't bow at the end. Like, everyone knows who they are. Like, maybe that's just how it is. <laughs> So, so I literally, like, I was in the mezzanine, and I walked halfway down the stairs before I saw, like, a sign that was like, this play is two and a half hours long. And I was like, what? <laughs> There's a whole second act. <sighs> Did they and, put that up because people started leaving? I don't know. I, like, so I, like, awkwardly did this, like, walk of shame back to my seat and pretended I was stressed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. That's amazing. And, like, I had seen this because I saw so many people being like, oh, this is incredible. Like, Audra McDonald and Michael Shannon, they're so good in this. And, like, you should watch it before it gets popular. It never really got popular. I mean, plays have a tough sell. And it just was a hard story for me to fo- – like, I think it could work if it were done with either a different director or a different actor, which was also the other thing I was so surprised about because it was directed by Aaron Arbus, who is a woman – And you'd normally think that, like, oh, maybe they would take a more, like, softer touch to how the man, like, propositions the woman the whole time. But it just seems like he keeps pressuring her. Like, I can see where this would work if it is, like, hey, we really have a connection and I think you're just scared of it, but you shouldn't be. 
especially the morning after a one night stand, like ask for her number or something. <laughs> it wasn't even the morning. It was like what? right after they finished having sex, basically. Oh, fun. <laughs> and he made himself a sandwich? I don't remember exactly, but I think he offers to make her a sandwich because he is technically a cook at this cafe. So he like knows how to make things. But he's just like kind of inviting himself around her apartment. That's terrible. I can't afford to feed a man like that. <laughs> but yeah. So that was Frankie and Johnny. Um, it did get really good reviews, so we'll see about that, I guess. <laughs> I feel like even if the Tonys were happening, it's people have just kind of forgotten about this one. Yeah. I mean, it is so long ago. So I, I will say that at the very end, they play Claire de Lune again. And the stage does this like really weird thing. It's like one of those things where the stage looks like a much shorter stage than it is because they move the back wall to like halfway down the stage. And mm-hmm. at the end, they play Claire de Lune. And all of a sudden, the back wall starts like drifting backwards. I was either so tired or just like so <laughs> done with this play that I was like, wow, this is beautiful because it just like you just hear claire de lune and the back wall is just like drifting away and you're like they're just like floating in space so what happens in the end do they start dating because of the song not really i don't even think he like convinces her either way but they just like play the song again and he's like holding her as they like stare at the moonlight on her balcony or something is it like real time yeah there's no time skips oh, or anything. That's a long time to tell someone you don't want to date them. Yeah. I don't remember how Act 2 started. It's a pretty well-known thing, I guess. But I just mm-hmm. couldn't see it. So that's our play corner. Cool, cool. I think that about wraps up our yeah. first time ever talking about plays. <laughs> might be somewhat of a disaster, but might be okay. Who knows? Out of the three we talked about today, do you have like a favorite? Uh, not in particular. Like I know that Slave Play is in a lot of talks for the Tonys. It's not playing now, but like if it were, I definitely think it's still worth watching. Like we talked a lot about what we think about the plot and the premise and the message. And I think like a play that is like worth debating is definitely worth watching. Yeah. Um, as far as just like also being very enjoyable, I think like Seawall Life is probably the most easy to recommend. Yeah. And yeah, I would just never watch the minutes again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd say you probably agree. I'm, I would definitely listen to Seawall Life on Audible just to hear how much of it translates through an audio only medium. And I think Slave Play does definitely bear like remembering in the future and seeing if if anyone speaks up about like what they think about how it ends. Like I would definitely be interested Mm -hmm. in hearing other interpretations also. I think that wraps everything up. We'll be back with another round of plays in two weeks. So excited. Yeah. If you want to hear more from us and listen to that, then you can subscribe to us on whatever podcast platform you're using. And you can also talk to us and let us know if you have any specific opinions on what we've said. If you find us on Twitter, Instagram, at Bottomless B-Way, or email us at bottomlessbway at gmail.com. And otherwise, you can tune in in two weeks. So we'll be back then. Bye, everyone. Bye.